Now join us for our teaching series, Greater Than, a study on Hebrews 1 through 10. We're so glad you've decided to join us this morning. We know that we were hoping to be here in person, and obviously with the winter uh, weather advisory, we had to make a decision in light of the snow that's falling and your safety to just go to being online today. But I'm grateful that you've decided to join us. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Joe. I serve as one of the pastors here at Riverbend. And one of the things that happened over the last several weeks and months is my family had been impacted by COVID in a very tangible way. And as that had happened, and my wife and my mother-in-law both got COVID, and I wasn't sure if I was going to get it. And my son, Ray, the leadership here thought it would be great and wise to line up the teaching team to speak just in case. Well, good news is I didn't get COVID. (laughs) And the other part of this uh, is you get to hear from great communicators. So I haven't spoken uh, in 2021 yet, which is kind of crazy. So uh, next Sunday, I'm ready to go. I'm chomping at the bit. But this Sunday, you're in for a real treat as I get to introduce to you Someone that is very familiar to you, most of you know him, is my older brother, Jesse Velarde. And Jesse has been such an instrumental part in my own growth, my own development as who I am in Christ and what it means to come after Jesus, but also in the life of our church here at Riverbend. Because when we started Riverbend, he was one of the early adopters to what it was that God called us to. And I'm so grateful that he decided to join us here and to be a part of of what God was doing, and he's done all kinds of things throughout his time here at Riverbend, like starting our kids' ministry, uh, to leading community groups, being on the elder team, and the teaching team as well. And so I'm just grateful for a good word that Jesse's going to bring today, a word that I, I really feel is very timely, given the season that we all are going through collectively, where we really are desirous to be reminded that in the midst of all that we're facing, that there's something greater than even our circumstances. So let's give it up for Jesse. Let's give him a warm welcome. Woo! Yeah, Jesse, come on up. Come on up. Jesse's the man. Woo! All right. All right. Good morning. Thank you, Joseph. It's great to be with you all today. And I've got a very important question that I want to start off our conversation with. And that question is, what are you hoping for? Where is your hope? What are you hoping for? What do you want to see happen? For some of us, what we're hoping for is we are hoping that this snow will stop. We're tired of these icy roads. We've had enough of our kids being at home. We want the snow to stop. For others of us, we want the snow to keep coming because we don't want to go back to school. We want the additional days off for work. We want to be building snowmen. Some of us are hoping, and we've been hoping for the last 11 months, for the end of COVID, for the end of social distancing, for the end of masks. Other of us today are building up our hope for the Super Bowl. We're rooting for Tampa Bay or Kansas City. We're all hoping for something in the future. We're all hoping and believing for something to happen. Now, we're going to explore what the hope that we are building our lives on. Hope is what you want to happen and what you would like to see happen. But we're going to talk about a hope that you're building your life upon. And I had an experience with hope myself recently. A couple of weeks ago, I had been looking for a new employment opportunity, and I got a great personal referral to a phenomenal, well-known company, great with people, and everybody told me, Jesse, you would be a great fit for this place. You would be a great fit for this job. You would do so well here. 
and I had a, a wonderful first interview, and the, even the lady that interviewed said, oh, this next person, she is going to be blown away by your experience, by your skills. And I thought that I had a great conversation with the next interviewer. And so last Tuesday, we had the interview. She said, we'll get back to you in about 24 to 48 hours. Well, needless to say, I'm checking my email. And an hour goes by, six hours go by, 12 hours go by. I'm checking that email again and again. A day goes by, two days go by, and I'm so wrapped up in, I'm hoping to get this job, but this, you know, and and I'm checking and I'm kind of getting stressed. Anxiety is building up because I'm not hearing back from them. And I'm like, surely they wanted me. Surely they saw that I answered these questions the right way. Finally, three days later, I emailed the contact person, and they said, well, there were some very positive things about your interview, but we've decided to go in a different direction. And even though I was very disappointed and a little frustrated, and had, even though that was something I had hoped to happen, I was not building my life on that hope. And each of us, we are having, we build our lives on a hope for the future, and that governs our choices and our decisions today. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews talks about and encourages the church to, you know, go on to get off of baby food and to start becoming mature believers. And we're going to explore that passage here in Hebrews 6. It says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on and instead become mature in our understanding. Surely, we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. I want you to look at that passage that's highlighted. Mature in our understanding. What does mature in our understanding really mean? Does it mean that I've got the Bible memorized? Does it mean that I'm tithing all the time? Does it mean that I'm doing missions work and always doing great stuff in the church? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Maturity in Christ is not really about knowledge. It's not about information. I'm about to show you the picture of what real maturity in Christ looks like. I want you to brace yourselves. Are you ready? This is a very important picture for all of us to see. You might want to take a screenshot. I'm going to give you some time. You ready? One, two, three. Here is the picture of maturity in Christ. There it is. There it is. Maturity in Christ is all about trust, dependence, and obedience. Maturity in Christ is being like a child. Jesus said, We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless we enter it like children, trusting, trusting. And and that trust and that dependence and that obedience is not a head knowledge of a school subject. It is a heart knowledge of a loving father who sent his son to give us everything, to have an intimate and close relationship. That maturity is all about staying connected with our heavenly father And allowing him and his desires for us to mold us, to shape us, and to make us the men and women and the children of God that he wants us to be. See, this world, we think about maturity as independence. 
we think about, what am I doing on my own? I don't need my mother and father. I'm moving out of the house. I'm doing everything on my own. It's totally opposite in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God and maturity is all about trust, dependence, and obedience. And we're hesitant to do that because many of us have been betrayed by other people. We've also been betrayed and lied to by people in the church, have had bad experiences. So to think that we can trust and depend and rely on God is very difficult. But we can see because of what Jesus has already done on the cross that we can trust and obey and have a dependence day by day, moment by moment on the love of our heavenly father. And this is what this church needed. This church was a primarily Jewish church, which had been raised on a lot of for centuries, rules, laws, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And that kind of gave people a sense of arrogance and self-righteousness. And this idea was permeating the church. And what they thought was, I needed to have Jesus, but I also needed to get circumcised. I needed to have Jesus, but I also needed to do this and this and this. But, but the author of Hebrews is saying it's all about Jesus. We're becoming mature in our understanding as we grow in our trust dependence, and obedience. He says, you don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move further. We will move to further understanding. We will move into a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship, a deeper closeness, a deeper intimacy. All of these things are the basics The basics, the baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. These are the basics. God is laying a foundation. A foundation. Now, when you lay a foundation, do you lay a foundation and just leave it alone? No. We lay a a foundation is laid to support a much larger building, to support a much bigger structure. Let's imagine you were going down Hamilton Boulevard, and you saw a foundation today. You're like, hmm, I wonder what they're building. But then three months later, you were going down the road, and that foundation was still there. No progress had been made. It was just a foundation. And then six months later, you went and saw a foundation. What would you think? It's like, why are they just having a foundation A year later, two years later, there's still a foundation, but nothing else. You would think, what are these people doing? And could you imagine if they had a ceremony? They had this ribbon. The mayor comes out. The CEO comes out. We are here to celebrate the laying of the foundation. Yay! You know, they, they, that would be crazy. You would, you don't have a celebration for a foundation. God is trying to build something greater on the foundation of our faith, on the foundation of the basics of what Jesus has done in our life. But we have to trust him, depend on him, and rely on him and allow him to build that foundation, that greater work. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging the church to say, you don't need, we we need to get onto a deeper understanding because if we don't, God will not be able, we will not allow God to build something greater that he is desiring in you and he is desiring in me for a hurting, sick, and broken world that so desperately needs his love. Now, he really uses a very extreme scenario here to grab his audience's attention. It says, for it is impossible 
to bring back to repentance those who were quote-unquote once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God, it is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. And this verse is, is, is a very extreme example, and I think he's using a very hypothetical scenario. He's not saying you can lose your salvation, okay? I think what he's describing here is people who are, let's say, intellectually persuaded, but they're spiritually uncommitted. They say yes to Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe you endured the torture and the shame and the humiliation that you rose from the dead, but I'm not really ready to go all the way with you with my heart. And he's using that extreme example to grab the attention of the Hebrew audience, intellectually persuaded, but spiritually uncommitted. We don't want to just know about God. We want to know him. We want to love him. We want to connect with him. And he goes, by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross again and holding him up for public shame. So it's, it's as if Jesus is going through the crucifixion and the humiliation of the shame of, of the cross one more time. A lot of people are brought to faith because of the work that Jesus does in each of our lives, our testimonies. And we talk about, I was far from God, I was hopeless, I was in despair, but then Jesus came after me and welcomed me into my family, into his family. Other people see that and are drawn to that. And I would say that by the same token, other people say, see people that, well, I was once following Jesus. I was going to church. I had thought I had given my life, but then I got distracted. Then something else took priority, and I don't think he's for me anymore. I'm kind of wrapped up in the flavor of the month of this culture. You know, I'm, I'm wrapped up in this author. I'm wrapped up in this circumstance. And I don't think this happens overnight. I think people when they don't make Jesus the top priority, the demands of life and the pressure of culture kind of takes our attention away from Jesus. And we slowly begin to drift away from him and we begin to drift to these other desires and to these other things. And the more we drift away from him, we start to forget about him because we're not making the effort. We're not making the priority to make this the most important relationship in our lives. By rejecting the Son of God, they're nailing him to the cross again and holding him up for public shame. And I would say that this crucifixion is much more painful, is much more intense, because rejection by those you love the most is the most painful. Could you imagine? I have two boys, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. I could not imagine the pain of my son Joel saying, Daddy, I don't believe you love me. I could not imagine the heartbreak of giving all that I've given to my son Hunter, the long nights, the dirty diapers, everything that I've given to show him that I love him, for him to say, Daddy, I don't believe you love me. I want another father. I want to go to find somewhere else for love and affection. And when we reject Jesus. After once having served him, that's what we're doing. We're twisting the nail in the hand again. How much more painful is that? That rejection by those who were once with you, 
have experienced your love, have experienced your freedom and said, you know what? I would rather pursue money. I would rather pursue a job opportunity. I would rather put my hope in the politics. I would rather put my hope in, in, in a relationship, whatever it might be. I'm injuring and, and, and hurting and crucifying Jesus again. And it's a lot more painful this time. And he talks about in, chapter, in verse 7. He says, when the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer... It has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Now, this is emphasizing a passage that Jesus talked about. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he says that the people that don't stay connected to him are like branches that have no use. They get picked up. And they just get tossed into the fire. But when it soaks up the falling rain, and bears a good crop for the farmer, has God's blessing. And the way that we will bear a good crop for the farmer is to stay connected to the vine, is to stay trusting, obedient, dependent, reliant, making that the daily priority of our lives. That Jesus said, I'm the vine you are my branches. I've got to stay connected to him. And you even see people who lead churches, lead worldwide ministries, get so wrapped up in trying to find their validity and identity in their ministry that they, stay, they get disconnected from the vine and they fall into sin and their witness is really damaged and so is their legacy and reputation. Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies for you, applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. The author of Hebrews has used two very extreme examples to grab the attention of his readers and audience and the church. He says, we are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. Well, what comes with salvation? Salvation is the assurance and the guarantee of eternal life when we put our faith and who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. And the awesome thing about God is salvation is really the starting point. Unfortunately, a lot of people in church and a lot of people in Christian circles say, well, God has punched my ticket to heaven. I'm saved from eternal fire, and that's, that's all I need. God, I don't want you to do anything else. But what comes with salvation? With salvation comes a new identity in Christ. We have been reborn. Okay, I, 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 what else comes with salvation is the opportunity for relationship and connection with our Heavenly Father. This is something that those readers would have thought was insane because they were raised for centuries that only the priest, as Mike talked about last week, the high priest could go and offer up a sacrifice for you and for the ordinary Joes in the society. You weren't worthy. You weren't good enough. Only one person could come that close to God. Are you telling me that God sent his son to endure that humiliation and shame so I could have a relationship, so I could have a connection, so I could have an intimacy and closeness, a trusting, dependent, and obedient, mature relationship with him? 
That's what comes with, that, with salvation. And out of that relationship comes peace, comes joy, comes comfort, comes hope. And out of that comes fruit. Fruit that people see in our lives. The desire to help others. The desire to serve others. The desire to give to others the way that we have been given. It's not what we have to do. It's what we want to do. Because we've experienced such an amazing love. And he's saying, you're meant for better things. You're meant for better things. You are a church to a hungry, seeking, and lost world. You're meant for better things. You're meant to find your comfort and identity fully in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He says, for God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers. Notice He didn't say how you've shown your love to him by reading your Bible. And he didn't say you have shown your love to him by going to the gathering. And you have shown your love to him by giving in the offering. And you have shown your love to him by voting for the Christian candidate. And you have shown your love to him for praying that a Christian will become president. That's not what it says. You have shown your love to him by caring for other believers. And Jesus really emphasizes this. He says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice, this isn't a new request I give you. This isn't a new teaching I give you. A new suggestion I give you. A new commandment, a requirement that I'm giving you. And when we think about commandments, we think about Moses and the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Oh man, I'm not doing that. Thou shalt not steal. I'm not doing that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Mm, Not doing that. But Jesus is saying, I'm giving you this commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And I'm not talking, and he's not talking about a love that's just hugs and kisses and cards at Christmas. This is a love that lays itself down daily, sacrifices itself daily, puts itself on the cross daily. And when people see the the followers of Jesus loving and serving each other this way, this is what they want to be a part of. They don't want to be a part of of a church that's just saying, oh, I want a Christian nation with Christian values where Christianity reigns. They want to be a part of the family of God. But if we're not showing them that the family of God is all about loving and serving and giving and helping, they don't want anything to do with that. And Jesus' disciples, that is what they really pursued, was loving and serving each other out of a deeper closeness, trust, and dependency with the vine, Christ himself. So, he says, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. And the awesome thing is when we begin to follow Jesus and when we begin to interact with our Heavenly Father through prayer and reflection and reading Scripture, our hearts begin to change. Our desires begin to change. And the things that we used to do We don't have the desire to do. The things that we didn't want to do, we now have the desire to do because we have been embraced by such an unfailing and unconditional love. And then our hope 
becomes what our Heavenly Father hopes for, that other people will see, other people will know, other people will experience this hope because your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers are dealing with a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of addiction. Even though this world might tell you you've got everything, they're still feeling empty and they're still feeling like they don't have anything. Hope is the assurance of free and unlimited access to God through Christ Jesus. These readers in the book of Hebrews would not believe that you could do that. That would be crazy that a sinner like myself, that a murderer, that somebody in prison would be able to have free and unlimited access to God through what Jesus has done. They would say that's insane. That's insane. But unfortunately, many of us, we treat that kind of like a consolation prize. Like, this is not really what I want. I want the job. I want the house. I want the vacation. I want the healing. I want the child. But God, I really don't want you. I don't want to be close to you. I don't want to get connected with you. I don't want to hear your voice. I don't want to be changed by you. But this hope is being based on something that has already happened. Not something that we want to happen. Something that's already happened. It's already been done by, the, by what Jesus has proven on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. And now we have unlimited access to God through Christ Jesus. And any of those things that he gives us. Spouse, promotion, finances. There's gifts from him. But those things are not our primary hope. Jesus Christ, he is the fulfillment of our greatest hopes and our greatest desires. I see so many people who you would think have it all. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of fame. They've got a lot of status. They've achieved everything this world tells you makes you happy. But they still feel empty. They still feel like they don't have enough. They feel like something is really missing. At the root of all of our hope and desires are three things. We all want to be loved. We all want to be valued. We all want to be accepted. And we're looking for something to provide that, to provide that validity to us, to provide us a source of identity. But Jesus provides all three of those things. Unconditional love, you are shown value beyond what anybody else could ever show you. And acceptance, acceptance for who you are, acceptance for what you've been through, acceptance even though you might think you are so far away. And and it wasn't a, a grudging acceptance. It was an acceptance that was pursuing you. It was acceptance that came after me. It was an active, aggressive acceptance and desire to have you and me as part of the family of God. He says, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. And he's talking here, this is a long-term proposition. This is an eternal proposition faith and endurance. You will not become spiritually dull 
and indifferent. There's a lot of people in churches today who are spiritually dull and indifferent because they started following Jesus with a lot of enthusiasm and joy and excitement. But then the demands of life, the pressures of this world, the lesser desires for things, for people, for status, began to cloud their vision. They don't, I don't think they set out to become dull and indifferent. I believe there's a drifting that takes place. And I've experienced this drifting in my own life as I've allowed myself to get distracted by circumstances. And as I've allowed myself to get distracted by my own wants and my own desires and stopped making the pursuit of Jesus and the pursuit of knowing him and the pursuit of connecting with him my primary goal and really treating this as the most valuable relationship in my life. That out of that vine flows the life and the love for me to love my wife, love my children, help my coworkers, and be everything that God wants me to be. If I just have a book knowledge and a church head knowledge, I'm going to become dull and indifferent. But if I stay connected to the vine, I am going to be refreshed. I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to be corrected. I'm going to stay alive and vibrant because Jesus said, he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The branches that are fruitful, my father comes and he prunes so they will be even more fruitful. And for those who are fruitful, guess what? You and I, we can still be even more fruitful. God is still doing a great work in us because we're, he says, you, you know, we just got to trust him and surrender to him. He said, follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. This is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment decision. This isn't, I'm walking with you till I get what I want. It's, I'm walking with you because I love you. I'm walking with you and you're leading me. I'm walking with you, you're changing me. There's nobody else that I want to be with. And I'm going through the highs and the lows, the peaks and the valleys. You're leading me through each of those things and bringing me closer to you through that. And I'm enjoying your promises that you will always be with me, that you'll never leave me or forsake me, that you will supply all of my needs. And he uses an example from somebody that was highly esteemed and regarded by the Hebrew church. He says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. For these people that were reading, Abraham was like the man. He was like the father of Israel. And he said, since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. For those of you that don't know this story, Abraham wanted a son, and he was getting older and older. God told him he was going to have a son. He was like 50, didn't have a son. 60, didn't have a son. 70, didn't have a son. He started to become impatient in waiting for a son, decided to take matters into his own hands, fathered a son with his servant. Let's just say God was not really happy about that. Nonetheless, God gave him a son. Abraham's like pushing a hundred. He's, he's chugging the, Jag- the Geritol, the Metamucil, 
And God brings the fulfillment of his promise to have a son. But as his son gets older and, and as Abraham has enjoyed a lot of great memories, times of affection and connection with his son Isaac, God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Can you imagine if God said, I want you to kill your son? I, I could not, I don't think I could do that. But Abraham took his son, they went up a mountain, and they went to an altar. And I wonder what his son Isaac was feeling, if there was any tension, if there was any anxiety. It's like, we're going to the place where we normally sacrifice animals. And along this road, his son's saying, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. And he keeps asking, where's the lamb? Because he's like, if there's no lamb, who's going on this altar? And Abraham takes his son, puts him on an altar, ties him down, takes a knife, and is ready to stab him. And then he hears God's voice and says, stop, 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 stop. I have seen that you love me, that you trust me, that you depend on me. I am going to bless you. You are going to be the father of many nations. There's going to be more of your descendants than stars in the skies, and this whole world is going to be blessed because of you. And Jesus is one of the descendants of Abraham. But if Abraham was with us today, you know what he would tell us? He would say, you know what? My greatest joy was not getting my son. My greatest joy was not being the father of many nations. My greatest joy was knowing and trusting and depending on my heavenly father. That was my greatest reward. For the Israelites that had gone into the promised land, before they went to the promised land, God sent them in the desert and they wandered and he wanted to build their trust and dependence and reliance on him. So that they would see that, that as great as the promised land was, that wasn't where lasting hope was. That wasn't where their lasting joy was. For these disciples that had started all these churches, they would say, it's awesome what God did through us, but that's not where our hope is. That's not where my hope is. My hope was in Christ and in knowing him. I waited a very long time to get married. Joseph got married. John got married. Years go by. Neighbors get married. Friends get married. Everybody and their brothers getting married. I'm 30, still single. 35, still single. Finally got married at the age of 37. But what I would tell you, as, as, I, as much as I love my wife, Andrea, and we have an amazing marriage and a wonderful family, she is not my greatest hope. And she would tell you, I'm not her greatest hope. And that's not what I was building my future on. And we cannot build our future on things that we're hoping for. God is our greatest hope. God himself was his greatest gift to Abraham. Not the things that he gave him, not the, not the fulfillment of his promises. It was himself. It was being there, just being present. Not all these great things. It was being connected. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. So if you see, we see that we had an inauguration, and if you see a swearing in at a, at a court case, they take an oath. There's four words after that oath. 
So help me God. So help me God. And without any question, the oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received his promise, the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Maybe for some of us, that's part of the reason we have a hard time trusting God. Because people that we've grown up with, people that we've worked with, people that we've put our hope in, hope in have changed their mind. They've let us down. they disappointed us. And I want to let you know that no matter where you are, that's always going to happen. That's always going to happen with people, but it will never happen with God. God doesn't change his mind. And he made this promise to never leave us or forsake us, to provide for us, to give us life, to give it more abundantly, to be everything that we ever needed. That is God's promise to us, and God doesn't change his mind. So, God has given both his promise and his oath. These things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence and hold to the hope that lies before us. We fled to him for refuge. If I'm fleeing for refuge, I'm fleeing for safety, protection, comfort, provision, refreshing. We can have great confidence as we hold to the hope. Hold on to the hope. Hold on to him with all of our hearts. Hold on to him with everything we have. Because this world is always going to be changing. Your circumstances are always going to be changing. Has this 2020 not shown you that? Everything is going to be changing. But he will always be there. and He will always be present with open arms, ready to embrace you, ready to connect with you, and ready to transform me and you. We have great confidence. I'm not putting my hope in the stock market. I'm not putting my hope in the election. I'm not putting my hope in a job promotion. I'm not putting my hope in my marriage. I'm putting my hope in his love, which has proven itself again and again. He is unfailing, and he is faithful. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our soul. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary, a closeness, and a dependence, and intimacy. This hope is a living hope, a loving hope, a giving hope. It's an anchor, an anchor. An anchor holds a ship down. If we don't have God as the anchor for our souls, the rushing waves and crashing waves and the tides of this world are going to carry us out to sea and we're going to be shipwrecked. Or we're going to be hijacked by pirates have everything stolen from us and taken from us. But God is the anchor for our souls. Not, and he doesn't hold us down. He holds us close to him. So that when things are constantly changing, events are not going the way we want them to, and even in the times that we're celebrating, this is where my hope is. This is where my hope is. I'm holding on to him. He is a living hope that is never changing, always loving, always faithful. So, What I want you to hear from this, hope in Christ is an anchor for our soul. Hope in this world is an albatross around our neck. If you have hope in Christ, you have a strong and sturdy foundation that he's building on. You have the the opportunity for deeper relationship, deeper connection, and deeper intimacy as you spend time in prayer, as you share with God 
your needs, as you take time to listen to God's voice, guidance, direction, as you take the time to receive your affection, his affection. But hope in this world is an albatross around our neck because there's nothing in this world that can support your need. There's nothing in this world that can support all your desires. There's nothing in this world that can support and bear the burden of all my expectations. All those things are going to let me down. All those things are going to disappoint me. And that's not bad to hope that things happen. But Jesus needs to be my primary hope, my source of hope, trusting him to provide, guide, and lead. Otherwise, these things are going to weigh me down, and I'm always going to be hoping. I'm hoping, and I'm always anxious for this job promotion. I'm anxious for this election result. I'm anxious for this healing. I'm anxious for this promotion. I'm anxious for this raise. I'm, you're going to be in constant anxiety. But this hope in Christ is going to be a place of awesome peacefulness, joy that you can bear fruit and give to others. I want to share with you a beautiful hymn that really expresses this very well. It says, my hope, is on, it's a hymn called On Christ the Solid Rock I Stay. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, sacrifice, torture, humiliation poured out for me to bring us into the family of God and righteousness My hope is not built on something that will happen in the future. My hope is built on something that has already happened and something that is currently happening. When I engage with my heavenly father, I wholly lean on Jesus' name. I put everything I have for Jesus to support me. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus said, when we follow his commandments and put his his teachings into our lives, we're like the wise man that built his house on the rock today Who you put your hope in, what you put your hope in, will determine whether you're going to have an anchor or an albatross. And Jesus has proven that he can be our living hope, and he wants to be our living hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are our loving hope, our living hope, our giving hope, our forgiving hope. You're the hope of this world. Be the hope of our lives. Help us to know you more. Help us to put aside lesser desires lesser wants. Help us to pursue you with all of our hearts because you love us so much as your sons and daughters. And there are so many people that we know who don't know how much you love them. The only way that they're going to know them that is if we are allow ourselves to make you our living hope. Thank you for each person here. Help us to put this into practice this week in Jesus name. Amen.